0: Welcome to the Botztieber Austrian-American Podcast. Joining us today is guest host Dr. Jacqueline Van Sant for a special three-part podcast series on Austrian children and youth fleeing Nazi Austria. And on the second yeah, on the first day, I to and am school. War das zu arg? Meine Mutter hat darauf gestanden. Ich also am zweiten Tag wiedergegangen. Da hat sich etwas Glück- 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 Glückliches ereignet. Ich bin neben einem Mädchen gesessen, und die war Puerto Ricanerin, hat nur Spanisch gesprochen. Ich habe nur Deutsch gesprochen, aber wir hatten dasselbe Problem. Und dadurch war das dieses ganze. Uh, diese Angst so in in Alter man Hi,
1: I'm Jacqueline. Today I'm talking to historian Dr. Tim Corbett, who recently published a monumental study on Jewish cemeteries in Vienna for the special volume of the Journal of Austrian American History. He's looking at Jewish children and youth who fled Austria and immigrated to the United States. Tim focuses on representative memoirs from the Austrian Heritage Collection, which is housed at the Leo Beck Institute in New York. Tim, what is significant about the Austrian Heritage
2: Collection? Hello, Jackie. It's actually one of the largest exile collections in the world today. Uh, To date, several thousand people have been contacted and interviewed and produced sources of, a, of quite a staggering range. Some are simple answers to questionnaires. Many people have conducted oral history interviews, some of which are several hours long. Many others have contributed all manner of documentation, photographs, uh, official documentation, and also memoirs. Uh, so, so written memory texts, I could say, uh, which is the focus of, of my project.
1: Uh, Many of these are unpublished memoirs. I'm particularly curious as to the author's impetus for writing them um, and what form they take.
2: I use the term memoirs very loosely. Uh, There is obviously uh, quite a a theoretical distinction between different genres of memoir and autobiography and testimony and so forth. Uh, I can only emphasize that the Austrian Heritage Collection texts are extremely diverse. Um, the impetus is is varied as well. Some of the texts were already authored, in fact, before the Austrian Heritage Collection as a project formally began and were only collected later on. Others were authored on request by the Lealbeck Institute and by the Austrian Heritage Project, uh, which means that the... Motivation of the individual memoirists was also extremely diverse. So, some of the texts will, for example, be written very explicitly addressing this this scholarly audience, you know, in, in a very factual manner, saying this is, so to speak, my, my testimony of my experiences of the time. Uh, reaching all the way through to some texts that are highly literary in nature, that are really structured more like complex memoirs with chapters spanning hundreds of pages. Uh, and right there already, we can see that's a result, not least of all of the diversity of the memoirists themselves, because some of them, for example, were extremely educated uh, and highly cultured uh, individuals who were themselves embedded in in various literary or political uh, contexts, and that's then reflected in in the, the text that they produced
1: so um the, the, with the um the written. Memoirs, do the authors give them
2: titles? Usually, yes. Uh, surprisingly, there, there are some that are essentially untitled, but they're usually given some form of title. Um, most of them, it's difficult to quantify. I would say that most are in English, but with a sizable proportion in, in German as well. And again, the, the titles are equally reflective of diversity, not just of the contents, but also of their, if you want to call it that, their, their sort of literary. Quality. So some will be extremely direct and just say, my memories, or, you know, my life in Austria. Uh, and others take extremely uh, literary forms. Uh, so Wilhelm Abb, for example, um, penned um, a memoir or autobiography entitled Neues Leben blüht aus den Ruinen, New Life Blossoms Forth from the Ruins, which he wrote in 1994, meaning that it precedes the, the formal. Uh, Austrian Heritage Collection, example of a, of a very literary, or almost poetic uh, title, and is reflective as well of the, of the content of the memoir.
1: Hmm. So, another question I have about um, the memoirs or the text, the both oral and written texts, do do the, do, the um, do they ever question memory at all?
2: Absolutely. Uh, many of the texts are extremely self-reflective, uh, which is uh, a consequence, of course, of the circumstances in which they emerged. So some of the earliest texts, in fact, emerged already during the war, amazingly enough. Uh, so, for example, Harvard University conducted a, uh essay competition in 1942 Called Mein Leben in Deutschland vor dem 1930s in the So, my life in Germany, uh, which is an interesting title, not least of all because it just was taken to include Austrians at that time, of course, Austria having been a- annexed to Germany. Um, but whether these memoirs were written in the 40s, 50s, or later in the 2000s, as recently as a few years ago, There was always a sense among the memoirists that they were very explicitly being asked about memories, about talking about a life that was not only chronologically in the past, but geographically too, because these are almost exclusively memoirs by people who fled from Austria and Europe and never returned. Uh, So memory plays a very crucial role and a very self conscious role, and this is especially true, I would say, of the later memoirs, so the ones that were really created uh, on request as part of this Austrian heritage collection, Um, because uh, there was also a sense among the scholars who designed this collection, who developed the questionnaires and and the questions, the interview questions, the structures and frameworks upon which these sources were then generated, they were, of course, working within a scholarly framework, that they were very um, self-conscious about the way that uh, memory works. Um, obviously, there is an entire field now that's emerged over the past 20 years called memory studies. And this this flowed very explicitly into these into the creation of these sources. But I don't think it's, it's purely a scholarly question. I would emphasize again that, that of course, for For these people, memory was everything because, you know, the the war and the Holocaust was over in 1945. But the memory of these times was really uh, a critical foundation for these people's lives and remained with them always.
1: Um, Well, that sort of leads into my next questions. Can you give us a few examples of how the younger memoirists, those who were born after 1920, look back on their flight and their immigration to the United States?
2: certainly um age is a is a very interesting aspect of these memoirs there was a a conscious attempt uh, by the Austrian Heritage Collection when it when it first began in the late 1990s to contact the older memoirists or the older survivors first with a very obvious reason there was a sense that that uh, we we being posterity needed to uh, collect as many stories from from older people as possible who course would not be around for so much longer Um, and nevertheless of course the the vast majority of the source materials that were collected in the end were of younger people and by that I mean people who were born predominantly after 1920 Uh, so the memoirs from age categories reach back as far as the 1890s even the 1880s but really the, the bulk are of younger people who were themselves However, of course, already older when when they were contacted as part of the Austrian Heritage Collection. And to engage with with these memoirs on the basis of the age is, is very illuminating because we see that there is a very striking difference between how people experience persecution, how they experience National Socialism, and the entire ordeal of having to flee Austria and Europe and to begin a whole new life the United States for many of them, not exclusively. I would say that uh, a major difference for younger memoirists is that they did not have the same sense of rootedness in Austria that their older peers had. So, for older people, they had lived through the First World War, for example. They had memories still of the Habsburg Empire. There was a a sense of a much di- a much different time and a much more complex. Society that they had once been a part of, which by the 1930s, I think it's not an exaggeration to say, had in many walks of life been reduced to these sorts of binaries of, for example, being Jewish or non Jewish, or this sense of, of Austrian or German versus Jews, that was such a, a defining characteristic of the 1930s. So then conversely, of course, for, for young memoirists who some of their earliest memories in life were of, of being stigmatized, ostracized, and finally persecuted, uh, clearly they didn't have a, a sort of longer or, or older or deeper rootedness, the Austria, to which they could relate back to. And so for them, and this is this is not true of everyone by, by any stretch, but for many younger memoirists, we notice that their their flight to America seemed like a very natural consequence of the situation in Europe at the time that they had lived through. Uh, Though how people then engaged with that when they got to America was a different question again. So for some people we see some fairly almost um, stereotypical stories that they ceased speaking German, they anglicized their names, they severed all ties to Europe and never wanted basically to have anything more to do with their former homelands like Austria, uh, whereas for others, the, the situation was, was absolutely more complex, uh, not least of all, maybe because they had a hard time adjusting linguistically apart from anything else, you know, into an English-speaking environment, having come from a, a German-language background. So you do also have young people who still, their, their whole lives had an extremely complex and ambivalent relationship to their Austrian past, even if they... Decided to remain in America for the rest of their lives. I hope that somewhat answered your question. By the way,
1: one of the memoirists, Harvey Fireside, describes the refugee identity with the metaphor jumble mosaic, which you use in your title. Which I found it's a wonderfully um, illustrative metaphor. Could you elaborate on what this meant to him?
2: Harvey Fireside is. One of the most critical of the memoirists I've looked at, so one of the more, for lack of a better term, one of the more negative ones, his very name is an indication of his feelings about Austria, because he was born Heinzweiner, so he, he and his family, um, the surviving members of his family, they Anglicized their names when they arrived in America, he wrote his memoirs in English, he described returning to Austria in the year 2000 and had thoroughly negative views about it. He felt absolutely no connection to Austria. And at the same time, uh, he was eight years old when um, the Nazis came to power in Austria, and he was 10 when he emigrated. So even though he had been very young, that was obviously the defining moment of his life a defining experience and that stayed with him always. I mean, linking back to your question earlier about memory. So when he used this term jumbled mosaic, he was speaking about what he saw as a refugee experience. So where the very fact of being a refugee itself was a defining experience for somebody's personal identity and identity being obviously quite complex and difficult term in this case, of course, referring to the yeah the very complexity of or, or the or the problematic nature of of having an identity when one feels that one has always been denied a certain identity as well. So in that sense, being a refugee is is one's primary experience, and hence this jumbledness. Uh, so in his case, it was you know he had a very strong feeling of being Jewish on the one hand. On the other hand, having this background in Austria that he nevertheless felt very rejected from, and then being in this new context in America. uh, So he was using the term quite explicitly to refer to people like himself, you know, in a very open-ended way. And that's why I felt that it was, for all that his was an unusually dark and really negative account of his own experiences. Uh, I felt that this was a term that really captured very well that very complex and, and striking subjectivity as well of, of these many countless refugee stories. Of course, we could expand well beyond the context of Jewish Austrians in the 20th century.
1: You write about someone who I actually met years ago, and that was when I went to um, the Stammtisch, um, and that was when it was at um, Gabi Glukseli's apartment, and that's Trudy Jeremias. And Um, She was born 1925. Could you tell us a bit about her adjustment to the United States?
2: Yeah, Trudy is famous, of course, uh, amongst anyone who has had any connection to the Austrian Heritage Collection, to the Leo Beck Institute, and generally, like yourself, people who have have worked on Jewish-Austrian memoirs and exiles and so forth. You mentioned Gabi Glücksilich's Stammtisch, the the famous one in New York, after Gabi uh, passed away, Trudy took over hosting the Stammtisch, and it has been up until the, the pandemic now. It was always hosted at Trudy's apartment on the Upper East Side. Uh, I have to say that Gabi's Stammtisch, that's before my time, so I, I unfortunately never got to to know Gabi Dubst, but I was taken in, so to speak, in, the, in Trudy's Stammtisch when I first went to New York in, in 2015 to the Leo Beck Institute, and um, I've been a member of that ever since. And Trudy is, is a is a wonderful person, of course, very mild-mannered person with a very checkered and interesting story who has been the subject of not a few interviews and reports, and most recently even a book, I believe, has been published about her. Uh, Trudy is is an interesting case for various reasons. She's the sort of individual who did not feel particularly Jewish when she was growing up, and would even claim that it wasn't really until the Angelus that, that she felt that she had a, this sort of Jewish identity was thrust upon her, although when one reads deeper into her interviews and her memoirs and so on, one sees that that's a little bit, perhaps putting it a little bit too simply. Um, But Trudy was very young when she went to New York, she was 13 years old, I believe, and One would think, I mean, for many people of her age, it was comparatively easy to to integrate in a new context. People were able to learn English fairly quickly and attend high school. I mean, we have many stories of people of her age who, if they were a bit older, might even have served in the U.S. military, but certainly, you know, attended high school, went on to university. And, you know, to all intents and purposes, I mean, all sooner or later became American citizens and they just continued living their lives as Americans. Uh, Trudy had a a rather more complex experience. In terms of her English, there is a a funny, but also almost moving or touching uh, anecdote that she felt she had learned enough English at high school in Vienna, and then she got through to New York and realized it wasn't enough at all to, to get by. She felt completely isolated, She remembered standing in the in the hallways in school and just crying because she felt completely alone, and ended up striking up a a friendship with a Puerto Rican girl, who was not a refugee, but you know had a more classic immigration experience. Same age, and they ended up bonding, you know, despite their very different backgrounds, because of precisely their feeling that they were both sort of foreign, you know, that they both came from different linguistic backgrounds. In, I think it's a very touching story and. For anyone who knows Trudy, it's, it's not surprising because that is, that's the, the kind of sensitive person she is. Uh, and her whole life, Trudy maintained this, this extremely complex position of not doubting her Americanness, so to speak. She, she lived in California for a while. She, came, she did come back to Austria for a while in the 50s. She always ended up going back to New York and said she had become a New Yorker, and that was, to all intents and purposes, home. And yet at the same time, never losing her affinity, for example, for the German language, and has spoken about how she, to this day, feels comfortable. She feel, feels a sense of home as well when she's around people speaking German and who can speak about Austria or Europe and so forth. Uh, so she's definitely an example of, of the really complex cultural positionings that emigrants, and refugees
1: it's particularly striking to me, and looking at their um, the lives of of the memoirists after they came to the United States, their adult life. Several of them became college professors here. And to what extent do you think this speaks to their Austrian background, if at all?
2: Yeah, absolutely right. that, that is a very noticeable facet of a lot of these sources in the Austrian Heritage Collection. is unbelievable amount of. Uh, really high proportion of people who have completed not just university education but even PhDs and, as you say, even went on to become college professors. I mean, some of the names that, that came up in, in my article uh, were Ithaca, Cornell, Harvard, and so forth, you know, so we're talking really prestigious universities. It, of course, becomes very difficult to s- explain why that is because I would argue that the nature of the memoirs themselves probably more to people who who had higher formal education to begin with, if if that makes sense. So, you know, that people who had a more educated background might be more inclined to write a several hundred page memoir of their lives, for example. Similarly, one problem almost with the Austrian heritage collection is what it doesn't portray. So what we don't have in there are people who, for whatever reason, might not have wanted to record their memories, who might not have wanted to be part of this collection. Very noticeably, for example, there is a a huge lack of Orthodox voices. Uh, And I think the, the reason is probably because Orthodox, so really religiously observant Jews, just were less involved in Austrian cultural life. And as such, didn't have that same sense of a loss of of culture that that people had who were less religious again might explain why you have a lot more people with a much more secular knowledge or secular background secular education and so forth amongst these memoirs that being said a lot of cultural histories have shown that there was a very high level of formal education amongst particularly viennese jews and of course we're talking about the republic of austria the history of Jews in, in the Republic of Austria has always been very much focused on Vienna anyway. So we have work like Stephen Beller, for example, to an oldie that already showed the, the very high percentage of, of Jews in, in university courses and in, in certain um, careers. And on the other hand, uh, there was in fact a, a study conducted a few years ago by uh, Ruth Vodak, the, the Austrian discourse analyst who herself was born, in, in emigration, so to speak, whose parents were, were Jewish immigrants from Vienna, actually explored this rather striking phenomenon of the, just the, the amount of academics and artists and intellectuals among the, particularly the, in her case, the second and third generation of, of Jewish Austrian emigrants, But it, it is a, a very noticeable phenomenon that is often being discussed. So, just to conclude, I think with the Austrian Heritage Collection, it would be. I'd see it at the moment more as a question than something I could definitively answer, but it's certainly an interesting question. Why are there so many people with, with these really impressive academic resumes?
1: So then on to the next question, You're, um, and this is sort of how you frame, um, you're frame framing your article. You're particularly interested in using the lens of intersectionality to look at the memoirs. And I know this is a very complex concept. Can you give us a brief definition of intersectionality and how you see this as a particularly helpful way to look at this corpus.
2: As a historian, I think this is a term that can, has unbelievable potential because I think it's not an a approach or a concept that is very widely used in historiography to date. Uh, so for me, it's thinking broadly about the many different categories of, of human experience and the way that they actually relate to each other, inform each other. And also thinking about the way in which categories are usually selected in, in historical studies and perhaps too reductively studied. So, for example, you might get a very particular focus on gender. You might get a very particular focus, I mean, obviously in, in my field in, on Jewishness, it's, it's a big topic, you know, talking about the concept of jewish identity we could add class we've already discussed education formal education i've already mentioned religiosity Uh, these are all different kinds of categories that are actually very universal categories of human experience and when we start to examine individual lives with an awareness of all these many different intersecting categories and of course stories start to become very complicated So I said at the outset that my aim was not to obfuscate or complicate, so it might sound like a contradiction. But I think what I'm trying to do is by saying, rather than reducing these many stories, and I would re-emphasize at this point that the Austrian Heritage Collection really vast. It consists of thousands of, of stories. So rather than reducing them, as has sadly often been done in, in similar studies in the past, reducing them to very blanket uh, views of, you know, how did people feel about being Jewish, for example, I'm more interested in thinking about, okay, if, if we break that down onto a level of, say, is there a difference between the different generations, between male and female experiences, between the different class conditions, the different religious backgrounds, even for me, a, a very interesting dynamic here is, is geography. So even though the vast, really vast majority of the people we're talking about here were born in or living in and certainly fled from Vienna. So there is this sort of strong focus on Vienna. These were also people who had on the one hand familial roots reaching all over Habsburg Central Europe, because of course Vienna was a, a sort of hub of migration from all over Central Europe. And on the other hand, you can then even sort of break down what districts uh, certain memoirs were from. So we've already spoken about Trudy. If I come back to her, she was born and raised in Heating, the 13th district, which is a, a district so far out, it almost doesn't feel like Vienna anymore. It's a suburb, the, the absolute quintessence of a of upper-middle-class suburb. And so to think about Trudy's rather, you could say, rather sheltered upbringing, And her sense, for example, that she never felt that her being Jewish or not being Jewish was really an issue before 1948 could in large part be explained by this background, for example, where, you know, coming from a a bourgeois background, a secular background and so forth, living in a suburb, you could conclude that that Jewishness just didn't play that kind of role there as it might have done in an inner city or working class suburb where conditions were much more politicized, for example.
1: Tim, could you give us a specific example of um, intersectionality in one of the uh, memoirs?
2: Yes, absolutely. Um, So I'll just choose one out of the article, um, namely Helen Blank, who was born Helena Buber in Vienna in 1917. She is a very interesting case, because you can see intersectionality at work on, on a number of levels. So on the one hand, being... A woman is significant, given the, the gender dynamics of the time that she grew up in. Also, the gender dynamics of, of memoirs and sources is the, the one level. She came from a family of uh, immigrants from the east of the empire, so that's another level that we have, is again this uh, immigration background, as it's often called in, in German. Um, she also taught at the religious Talmud Torah Schule, the, the religious school of the Jewish community in the second district, but she lived in the 16th district, which was a very working-class district in Vienna. So we have also religiosity. We have the, the kind of, call it the microgeography of the region. Um, so there were many different strands playing into her, her story, looking back on on that time, even after the, the entire context of expulsion and writing in the 1990s, she still thought of herself, as I quote her, in the truest sense of the word, I was a child of the new Austrian Republic, enjoying the many advantages created by it. So she felt very much that she had been conditioned growing up, even though, you know, as an as a immigrant child or as a second generation immigrant, growing up in this new republic. Was very strongly influenced by the social democratic movement. And we might see that almost as being a contradiction to her, for example, her, her working life where she worked in the second district, which has always been connoted very strongly as quote unquote Jewish district in Vienna, working in a religious school. That might seem almost like a contradiction, but it just shows again, and this is where I think intersectionality is such an important concept, that of course people can have very different cultural and social milieus that they move in depending on the sort of context of their lives that we're talking about. So her sense of belonging to a Jewish community on the one hand and yet being a part of the working class population on the other. And when she later reflected back on the First Republic, she talked at length about what she called the brilliant education system and the daycare centers and the successes of social democracy and interwar Vienna in is today known so famously as, as red vienna so she was able to to actually appreciate many of these different aspects of her particular experience that sounded like she managed to harmonize them quite successfully as well and although she is just one of of the vast majority of these memoirists who clearly did not choose to return to austria she also very clearly still later on in her life felt that she had been shaped as a person by these experiences close with another little quote from her. She says, call it brainwashing, call it education, it made a lasting impression on me. We became very proud of our red piano.
1: What a contrast between her background and Trudy's. I mean, the the difference between the 16th and the 13th district is um, they're worlds
2: apart. I think... Absolutely, they are worlds apart. And yet, I think what these types of stories show, and again, what this intersectional perspective shows is that none of these categories is deterministic, right? So we can't sort of assume that because someone came from a particular, you name it, you know, a particular district, a particular class or religious background or someone that they would have felt one way or the other. So for example, somebody who was more religiously inclined might, you know, a lot of people who were religious in that might have felt less connected to Austrian culture. People uh, with more immediate migratory backgrounds might have felt less of a connection. Harvey fireside would be an example. Again, the example of Helen Blank shows that again, you know that none of that is is given. None of that is deterministic. So, in a case like hers, you you do see contrasts, and in the same way, a, a sense of, of uh, similarity with a case like Trudy's. So, I think the the important thing to, to recognize in these kinds of stories is that none of these categories are deterministic much as all of these categories also shaped people's experiences so to refer again to Helen Blank although she was clearly very consciously and very strongly a part of, of a, had a sense of being a part of the Jewish community it was also her embeddedness in a working class district and in a social democratic milieu that made her feel equally very much a part of, of Viennese society beyond that difference of being Jewish or non-Jewish. I could give a, a final example in this context. A few years ago, I organized a roundtable at the Leo Peck Institute, um, where we invited Trudy to speak along with Kurt Sonnenfeld uh, who sadly passed away a year later. So we were very lucky to have him um, still take part then. And we actually chose quite strategically to to invite these two people because we knew that they would have very different experiences, truly coming, again, from a very unpolitical, a certainly very unreligious bourgeois background. And could, by contrast, having been born and grown up in the 20th district, you know, a really working class district with a very big Jewish population that was sort of at the forefront of some of these conflicts of the First Republic uh Kurt's father was quite uh, an important functionary in the Social Democratic Party and after that was banned in 1934 by the Dolfu's dictatorship there was a question for the family whether they should emigrate uh, and they decided to stay and the father continued actually his political activities in the underground so to speak so there we see again that For Trudy, you know, the the whole question of emigration only became an important question in 1938 with the Nazi ascension to power. Whereas for Kurt, you know, the context of of political persecution, of working in the underground, so to speak, and potentially being forced to flee had already been a question for his family since 1934. So these these are all just examples, but they all show how really complicated these stories can become. And a final lovely little point about Trudy and could for all their differences is that they were big, fast friends all their lives in a really moving way as well. So again, to see that in the end also their differences were not as big as their similarities.
1: Well, what's very exciting is that you have a contract already with the Vienna University Press for your project on the Austrian Heritage Collection. And certainly this is going to go well beyond the focus of children and youth fleeing Nazi Austria. Could you tell us a little bit about about the project?
2: Yes, it's it's broader, as you say, but it is very similar in, in scope to, um, to the article that I've, I've written for your volume. Um, so while the article sort of focusing on on this question of age and and generation and so on i see it as as a bit of a a microcosmic study of of the broader project so the the whole project is examining these selection of memoirs and by the way i haven't yet entirely narrowed that down i've studied 50 thus far i have many many more saved on my hard drive and the interesting question at this point you know at what point i sort of say this is the cutoff point i should say as well i mean this is not a this is not a collective biography. This is not a prosopography, you know. So I'm not interested in, in reconstructing specific biographies, but rather of telling this really vast history through a multitude of, of sources and of different perspectives of the individuals involved. So I've tried to, to structure that in a meaningful way that it will take a, a sort of quasi-chronological structure, so beginning in the Habsburg Empire and reaching through to the turn of the millennium. um, But it's not a chronological history, it is rather a a history of of key moments and key stations, so to speak, in in modern Austrian history, including, you know, stretching through America, and how this pool of of memoirists as a kind of representative group of, of this really large emigrant population from Austria, how they engaged with these critical moments with, the, with a constant emphasis on, on really diversity of opinions. And again, this, this term intersectionality comes in. that You notice there are only many, many different stories. There isn't the story of Jewish Austrians in emigration. There are just many stories. So it's trying to take as well a very anarchical perspective and not to privilege uh, one particular view over another.
1: Um, this is a fascinating collection. Is it um, available, available digitally?
2: Absolutely. Um, one of the amazing things about this project is that it is, for the most part, uh, available digitally. Um, the, the process of securing rights is understandably quite complex because the project is essentially run by an Austrian association but is housed in New York, which means it has to you know, adhere to, to various different copyright laws as well as um, data protection laws. For the most part, the aim of the project has been to make materials as accessible as possible, but that is, of course, also the prerogative of the individuals involved. And something I grapple with as well, you know, when you talk about, I mean, if you say you studied one memoir, but that one memoir might name 50 different people, I mean, you then also, it gets more complex because there's even more levels of of data protection going on. Uh, So I do know that some of the records are sealed, for example, for a certain period of time. Some people might have stipulated that they don't want things made public until after their death, for example. Uh, And yet... One can go online, either for the the Centre of Jewish History or um, the Neil Beck Institute, which is a part of the Centre for Jewish History, and go on their catalogue and find vast quantities of these materials, these questionnaires, audio interviews, photographs, and, of course, these textual memoirs. Uh, They can be read online and downloaded, which is a really great project. So a more recent development in that project as well, which is based again in Austria, is the so called Austrian Heritage Archive. As a not the collection, but it's called the Austrian Heritage Archive, which is a website that's trying to make these materials also again make them more accessible, but also in a more comprehensible form. So the Austrian Heritage Collection being as vast as as it is, it can be very difficult to to retain a sense of an overview if you visit the Austrian Heritage Archive, which has its own website, there is an attempt to start to cluster some of the interviews that create statistics and maps that you can see, again, things like people's age cohorts, the places they emigrated to, where the interviews get transcribed and also broken down with keywords so that you can actually go online and search for particular keywords and then find particular interview snippets that, that address these issues. Obviously with with anything, I mean, with a project, this scope, with this amount of material, that is a very ambitious undertaking, um, but it's opening up an unbelievably broad uh, insight into, into this particular history than, than we would ever have had with sort of conventional historical sources.
1: It, it just sounds like an amazing, like a treasure trove and a wealth of uh, research that you're doing and then also offering uh, future scholars future research. I want to make a jump now back to Vienna and to your recent publication. And your recent publication on several Jewish cemeteries in Vienna has been very positively received. Could you tell us something about your book?
2: Well, thank you. Jackie. Uh, I have been very pleasantly surprised by by the reception so far. The book, well, it was the product of of many years as you know of, of research, um, a decade all told and it ended up being a little bit bigger than I anticipated to begin with. It was over a thousand pages by the end. But weirdly has a similar sort of approach as the memoir project. So I also feel gravestones are are weirdly comparable to these types of memoirs because they are also a very anarchic kind of source. Uh so to, to point out the obvious, you know, everybody dies one day and everybody needs to be buried basically. And many if not everyone many people receive a gravestone so seen like this cemeteries are actually quite incredible archives reflecting uh, a breadth of uh, social makeup that again you wouldn't find usually in in other conventional historical sources and this is very much how i approached cemeteries as well not to sound naive of course because gravestones are not you know simple reflections or mirrors of, of lived lives. I mean, they are also sources that were created by other people with very particular purposes. I mean, the first that comes to mind is the old adage, nisi bonum," so that you do not speak anything but good about the deceased. And to be sure, you'd be hard pressed to find examples of gravestones that uh, speak badly about the people they commemorate. Again, they as a source of these these spaces, just open up a a completely new window into social and and cultural history. Uh, Not that this is, you know, a particular, I mean, it's not a a new approach. There have been really seminal works on on cemeteries in the past. I'm thinking here, for example, of Philippe Ariès' groundbreaking work, but obviously very focused on on Christian uh, funerary culture in Europe. And it is surprising given that there has been quite a lot of research on Jewish cemeteries that at the same time they've remained sometimes frankly a bit superficial and again I feel for precisely that reason that they tend to focus very much on, on questions for example looking in a category of say Jewishness or, or Jewish identity whereas approaching cemeteries from a much broader perspective of, of questioning again gender relations, class relations, religiosity, and just the the incredible shifts that take place culturally and socially over literally centuries that these spaces document. They open up a completely new perspective into social and cultural history in a a given area, in my case, within Vienna. So it's uh, in some ways almost, you could call it a micro-history, though of course Vienna's Jewish history is, I mean, of, of world standing in terms of its uh, of its of its scale and its influence in history, but at the same time micro-history, because Vienna is, after all, just one city. Um, yeah, it would be nice to see similar studies being done in different places in the future, on the basis of which we could then really start. So, I mean, before we even think of creating a work like Philippe Arias, you know, writing about all of European funerary culture, for example.
1: The Austrian Heritage Collection is truly a valuable resource. And Tim, I really want to thank you for sharing your
0: work with us on this fascinating corpus. Thank you. This podcast was produced by Dr. Jacqueline Van Sant, Dr. Tim Corbett, Elizabeth Leitzel, and Adriana Lacona. The Austrian Heritage Collections Oral History Audio of Trudy Jeremias is from a 2008 interview with Philip Broback, and is courtesy of the Leo Bake Institute New York. Our theme music is Hungarian Dance by Underscore Orchestra. Thanks so much for listening. The Botstiber Austrian-American Podcast is produced by the Botstiber Institute for Austrian-American Studies, which seeks to promote an understanding of the historic relationship between the United States and Austria, including the Habsburg Empire. To learn more about our grants, publications, events, and other programming, visit botstiberbias.org or find us on Facebook, Twitter, or YouTube.